This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm Tara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who probably should run against Ro Khanna, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Well, I'm not going to do that, but I actually did a great live interview with Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents California's 17th district, which includes the headquarters of Apple and Google. Congressman Khanna has been on the show before several times, most recently when he unveiled his proposal for an internet bill of rights. We talked a bit about that here, but also about the state of tech regulation generally, the 2020 campaign, and the FTC's recent $5 billion fine on Facebook. This interview was recorded live at Manny's, which is a bar and event space in San Francisco's Mission District. Let's go there now to hear my interview with Congressman Ro Khanna. Yes, it's me again. Oh, woo, yeah. Um, Ro and I know each other very well. We had a delightful lunch in the Senate, di- was that the Senate dining room? It was. Yeah, and we just gossip about everybody there. Anyway, we know each other very well. Well, all these senators started coming up to you. I actually felt important. I thought maybe these senators <laughs> are talking to me, and then I said, they just want to get on, get to know Kara Swisher. Yeah, it was funny because because um, he, he was like, no one ever talks to me, which was really good. It was <laughs> very funny. They talk to lowly house and when members we were in exiting, the Senate. And when we were exiting, yeah. the Tech Council of Nashville lost their minds. I know, great. I know. Anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about Ro Khanna. Mm. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, I talked to Congressman, uh, Congressperson Underwood. Um, By the way, she is fantastic. She How is. many folks saw her? Well, she's Lauren amazing. Amber, she's, she's amazing. She's one of the, I mean, the freshman class has so many stars. She's really one of them. She is indeed. And she talked about a lot of things which we're going to get into, but I think I, it's really important to talk about tech with you. And we, you and I have talked a number of times. We've done a number of podcasts about things. Yep. We talked about the Internet Bill of Rights. Um, let's start with that, because I wrote a column in the Times about it, and we did a great podcast about it. Where are we on this Internet Bill of Rights? This is Explain what you, what you did right. for uh, Speaker Pelosi. So Speaker Pelosi, after the whole uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal, said uh, we've got to actually have some principles of uh, regulations, well-crafted regulations that we can agree on, and that should have some accountability for tech. And so she asked me to work with a lot of the privacy groups, to work with some of the experts, Uh, She had in the back of her mind uh, the uh, technology illiteracy of a lot of Congress. I mean, uh, I don't know if how many of you saw the hearing with Sundar Pichai at Google where uh, some person held up their iPhone and said, if I move from here to there, uh, will you be able to track me? 
And uh, Sundar Pichai said, well, uh, Google doesn't make the iPhone, Apple does. At point, at, uh, maybe you should watch this clip. At which point the person starts yelling, saying, I don't want to be misled. Tell me, can you track me? And uh, Sundar says, well, it depends what apps you have on your phone. And the congressman says, I don't know what apps are. I don't care what apps are. Tell me uh, what whether you can track me. Yes, and so Pelosi yes, was very aware you. of this knowledge yeah. uh, gap. And so she said, why don't you actually talk to people who know what they're doing mm -hmm. uh, and see if you can come up with some principles. We came up with some very simple uh, principles, but important principles that you should have the right to know what's happening with your data. You should have the right to uh, consent before your data is collected or transferred. Uh, you should have the right to be able to delete your data uh, and a number of other principles. You should have the right to be notified mm -hmm. if your data is breached. And so uh, we got fair consensus. It became part of the Democratic agenda. And now, like many things in Congress, it is caught up in the committee. But Jan Schakowsky is doing a, actually a very good job, and she's going to be leading the bill in the Energy and Commerce Committee. So the next right. step is for some of these principles to come okay, through that. Okay, so they, there were a lot of them, and there were a lot of different laws that it yes. could come off all of them. Um, how many... There is not any legislation, though, in yes. this Congress. It's exactly zero. 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 Okay, nice. You can work. say there are a lot of areas. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. But this was something that was, that's been very important because yes. of the issues around just today. I hope none of you have a Capital One card. What's in your wallet? Well, people in Seattle know and have been charging things. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a huge breach of Capital One credit cards applications, which has pretty much everything. You know, this was followed. The Equifax one, which just paid yeah. their fines. The Facebook uh, FTC settlement. What is preventing Congress from taking action, a national privacy bill, or even the very low-hanging fruit of so many do-not-track provisions? It's a very good question, and uh, the it's been way too slow. Mm -hmm. I mean, in candor, it, we should have had this in the first six months of taking uh, the majority. Uh, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, interest groups that have a, a stake, the internet service providers, the uh, companies themselves. And so it's balancing all of these different interests. But I believe that, well, California has a law, a privacy law that should be the right. floor. And it doesn't take rocket science to say, at least let's start with that. Uh, but the jurisdiction is with the Energy and Commerce Committee. It's with Jane Schakowsky's committee. And we need to continue to, to, to push to, to get it through there. Mm -hmm. What are the likelihood of getting a national privacy any time in this, say, century? Right? <laughs> no, really. I mean, yeah. when, do you, when do you imagine it? Well, this is, this is I think, why tech leaders are uh, not as concerned. You know, uh, Tony Blair, actually, I thought, I don't agree with a lot of his things, but he had this uh, really uh, somewhat insightful comment. And he said, uh, the difference between American populism and uh, and, and uh, British populism is you just have populist rhetoric, whereas we are committing suicide by actually changing our policy with mm -hmm. Brexit. And the challenge has been that for all the rhetoric on antitrust and privacy, we haven't really actually advanced right. legislation. I mean, there's a lot of uh, hearings, there's a lot of calls, but what are we actually doing? I, I think, uh, you know, my view is we should do it by the next year, but would it surprise me if the entire... Uh, term goes by and we still don't have something that the Senate would pass and that the president would sign? No, it wouldn't. And this is, I think, factored into uh, a lot of the tech leaders' calculation. 
that it was that it would be slow moving. That, what do you yeah. think is necessary to pass right now? What, do you, what of all the the bills? And then I'd like to get to the FTC yeah. and other agencies that are supposed to monitor this for everybody. What part of the what 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 of the bills if you could pass one? Do you think is the most critical? I think having the right to at least know what's happening to your data, because I think that would give a lot of the nonprofit groups the ability to monitor and alert folks when things like Cambridge Analytica happened. I mean, many groups have 3,000, 4,000 people who are on these platforms, and if they could make requests to know what was happening, then they could have anticipated uh, Cambridge Analytica and, and uh, it alerted folks about that. So I think having something as simple as that would go uh, a long way, uh, a right to consent in some form before your data is transferred, uh, collected, uh, would go a long way. Having to be more simple about uh, explaining privacy settings. I mean, I was talking to some real uh, a folk, who, someone who was really uh, astute about technology, and their daughter was on Instagram and was getting messages from a unsolicited messages for from a stranger. And he tried to change the privacy settings, and he said it literally took him 20 minutes to figure out how on Instagram uh, he would be able to block someone from sending these unsolicited messages. And if it's taking someone who is in the tech field 20 minutes, imagine what it's taking people who don't have that level of technological uh, proficiency. And so just having simpler, user-friendly uh, uh, privacy settings, so you don't have to go search for things, but on the homepage, they're right, right there. So when you you represent Silicon Valley, or I do. A, a, a stretch of it, not all of it, correct? You split it, yeah. Part I, as I, I split it with Anna Ishu. I said all all the, the company, a lot of the companies are in my district. All the executives live in hers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know them anything. Um, so when you think about covering, do you think this tech lash has been too strong going back? I mean. They're your constituency, yeah. and Lauren, Lauren Under was just talking about serving her constituents. Right. You have been not really a cheerleader, and you're also not too much of an attractor. How do you talk about that? Well, look, I still think technology is going to create a positive impact on the nation and the world, and I don't think the, the I think the biggest concern people have is that there are parts of the country where you don't have opportunity to participate in the technology economy. And that's what we're not addressing, this gap of economic opportunity with the technology revolution. And so what I've said is, yes, we need to have stronger privacy regulations, but they have to be well-crafted. We need stronger antitrust, but it can't just be reflexive, break up the companies and let the Chinese companies uh, be dominant. Uh, talk about what uh, actually is going to prevent companies from privileging their own platform. Talk about having greater scrutiny and mergers, but be uh, thoughtful about it. And what we need far more of is an investment in, uh, in, in technologies, in artificial intelligence, in quantum computing, in, uh, uh, in uh, photonics, in the areas that are going to allow America to continue to lead. And we need to disperse those economic opportunities in, in places around the country. So that's so, been. So you brought up antitrust. Yes. Um, I wrote a column today in the uh, Times about this. Okay, I saw your earlier column, but I didn't see today's. This one, it was about antitrust. Okay. And one of the premises I was making, two of them were one, that Americans or everybody is a cheap date to the internet companies. Right. That, we, that they give us a free map, sure. maybe easy delivery. Yes. Um, and we turn over all our data to them. Right. We, they get much better out of the trade than 
than we do as right. a group. And there's all kinds of things. Should you be paid for your time? Should you be paid for your data? Yeah. Should you be aware of it at the very least? Should you have control of it? All kinds of things. Um, and that finally, these agencies are starting to investigate these issues, just like you right. said. Do you, Elizabeth Warren has, has said they should break them up. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have, have glommed onto that and thought that that was the correct thing. Um, part of me feels like, a lot of me feels like that's a great idea given how dominant. And I started the column by saying, here's a quiz. When was the last time we had a social media site started? 2011. That's a long time. In, in, te in tech terms, that's an eon. Yeah. Uh, last time a social media, I mean, a Does that, has engine, been that long? Yeah, today? Snapchat. Right. A significant one. I'm right. not talking about Yo or Oi or right. whatever the right. last one was. Yeah. Or Peach. Or They're right. gone. They're gone. They yeah. were here and gone. They, that was the Friday, the last the whole right. Friday. Uh, the last search service was 2009, DuckDuckGo, and it has 1% of the market. Right. Um, the last uh, big commerce site, not in a long time. Amazon yeah. dominates. Um, and it has a very, Wayfair has a very small percentage of the market. The last, the biggest amount, the last time there was a, online ad service, I can't even remember, a new one. It's Google and Facebook. And, and then each of these companies, Facebook, Google, and Amazon especially, dominate all these. What's the argument against breaking parts of them off? Well, the argument is, first of all, that there has to be a process, that the law in, of in uh, America is consumer welfare not protecting against competition. So you have to actually show harm to consumers. Unless and, you, you change that or show it, but go ahead. Sure. I mean, you could change it in Congress, but right. I mean, Congress can't pass, like, we should have right. know your data law. Right. The, 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 the idea that they're going to overturn antitrust law is uh, highly unlikely. They could. They could say, I don't think they should adopt, by the way, the European standard. I mean, Europe has had two tech companies in the last 30 years. They're almost irrelevant when it mm -hmm. comes to technology. They've had SAP and, and Spotify uh, and so, I mean, China is far more relevant, but uh, I would not listen to anyone about in Europe about anything about tech. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a declining innovation culture. And mm -hmm. so uh, I do think that there are thoughtful ways we should regulate. My view is uh, Microsoft's case was a very good, well-decided case. You had the Justice Department come in. They said Microsoft shouldn't be allowed to tie Internet Explorer uh, with Windows. Uh, had they been able to do that, we may all be using Bing Search. You may not have had Netscape. You may not have had Google. Uh, the case went to the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit said you didn't need to break up Microsoft. I don't think there are many people today, maybe there are some, who say oh, we should have broken up Microsoft, but we should have regulated it to make sure they couldn't privilege their own platform. Yeah. You could also look at AT&T. The reason you're holding your cell phone is because of that. Like, right. And there's networks. There's everything came out of that breakup. So in the, for the most part, breakups actually are beneficial uh, for, for a lot of industries, if there's especially dominant industries. So how do you assess how the FTC is doing the, the agreement they, uh, that they agreed to with um, Facebook, the $5 billion parking ticket? I think it could have been more. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think, I think Facebook looks at it as a cost of doing business and I don't think it really hurts their bottom line in a significant way. And I think that the, uh, the, there has to be you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't involved in the enforcement, but it seems to me a slap on the wrist. I mean, I don't think it's going to lead to significant change in uh, understanding the, the magnitude of, of, the, of the problem. So what should happen at the FTC? Because that's the agency 
that is, has a lot of things to do, and that's one of them. There, we talked about a separate internet agency, right. a digital agency. Wall Street has the SEC. Everybody right. has their agency. Why should there not be uh, an agency? There should. I mean, I support that. Michael Doyle, who's on the Energy and Commerce uh, Committee, has a bill actually saying we need to increase the FTC jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. We need to give them the ability to really enforce uh, technology privacy issues. And I, I do think they have an enforcement challenge. I mean, they don't have enough people uh, or enough expertise uh, in technology. So I would support stronger, uh, a, a stronger uh, view on, uh, on FTC enforcement. It's also a partisan situation, so it ping-pongs back and forth because yes. of the commissioners. But should there be a separate agency, the internet agency or whatever you want to call it, well, I mean, I'm I'm open to that, but you could also create that within the FTC. So you're not creating a whole new bureaucracy. I mean, the FTC has been fairly effective in certain areas. And I think if you gave them the staff and if you gave them the jurisdiction over the Internet, you could have uh, a strong uh, sense of, uh, of, of enforcement. So I, I want to finish up this part. So what would you want to see happen in that area? When in, FT, in, yeah, the in, in the FTC, in the enforcement. I is it the SEC? Is it the Justice Department? Because the Justice Department is now investigating these companies for antitrust. Right. Where is the appropriate place from your point of view? I mean, I think, that, I think both. I mean, I think you can have a robust antitrust division in the Justice Department that should look at uh, misconduct in, in antitrust. And I think they've done well in cases like Microsoft. And then I think with the FTC... You can have a lot of the privacy issues and they're, you know, right now they basically split up based on companies. That seems a bit arbitrary to me. But, you know, I think you can have a strong, I, I guess you can have two strong regulatory enforcement agencies. Right now the, uh, the enforcement agencies aren't strong enough. Right. So let's talk about Congress right now. We yeah. just had Congresswoman um, Underwood here. She's in a swing district. Right. You are not in a swing district. Right. Right. So talk about what, what it's like to be now, right now in Congress. What's the what's the mood? Besides, I, I want to hear about the fight. How you feel about the fighting within the caucus? If it's a real thing or just manufactured, or and, and how do you overcome that? Because it's certainly become a story. And it's something that, that the Republicans and Donald Trump are using as a wedge. Well, I think Trump unified the caucus when he started to attack people in the caucus. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there are genuine differences of opinion in the caucus. I mean, I would be lying if I said that uh, everyone is on the same page on every issue. I mean, mm -hmm. there are differences of opinion on boycotts and, and divestments. There's a difference of opinion on uh, issues about uh, the role of Homeland Security. There's a difference of opinion on the border uh, bill, the border supplemental. There was a difference of opinion on how aggressively and how fast to go after Donald Trump. I mm -hmm. mean, there, but when you have a diverse caucus from 235 districts uh, and you don't believe in groupthink, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, difference of opinion is, is healthy. The question then is how do you disagree in a way that doesn't play into uh, Donald Trump's hands? And I think uh, when we ended this session before recess, uh, we were probably more unified than ever before. I mean, you had the uh, speaker meet with uh, some of the four uh, members of Congress uh, who, the freshmen, who I, you know, where I think that they had uh, a, a constructive meetings and you had uh, the caucus uh, fairly uh, unified in terms of the outrageousness of the president's attacks on other members of Congress. Uh, and so I think we are in a place coming back that we're going to be unified in the 
uh, bigger uh, vision of uh, making sure that we win in 2020 and that we call out this president. But there are going to be disagreements within the caucus. So how do you, uh, when you're when you have like that, how do you fight the use of the wedge issue? Because it seems very effective doing these racist tweets, attacking this group of women, all of whom are women of color. Right. How do you stop that? Because it seems effective in some way, or maybe I'm misjudging it. Well, I'm not sure it's effective. I think the president has overplayed his hand. I mean, I think he's turning off uh, a lot of people in uh, suburban uh, counties and, and places across this money country because it's un-American. I mean, I, I think it's just, uh, uh, it, it goes so much against the 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 uh, spirit of this country. Now, I think he thinks, or Steve Bannon thinks, that every time you're talking about race and immigration, the president's winning. That's their theory. That's how he won. Uh, but I think he has way overplayed his his hand in, in trying to do that. Obviously, Democrats are going to speak out when the president does that. I mean, the idea that you can, some people say, well, why are you ignoring, why don't just ignore him and get your agenda done? But the, we can't ignore it if their president's out there tweeting to that some member of Congress should go back to a country which, uh, uh, you know, they weren't even born in. I mean, obviously we have to speak out against that. And so the, the question is, how do we speak out? How do we speak out forcefully? Uh, call it for what it is, and then also be able to have a positive agenda. Mm-hmm. How do you assess the reaction that Speaker Pelosi has had to it. I mean, you. It seems like this is a constant thing. Is he says something incredibly racist, says another thing, and it, it ratchets up, and then right. adds another one, and then the narrative continues. Um, if you had watched the show, this is how they did it on the show for years. I I did watch the show for many on years. On Apprentice. Oh yeah, I watched every episode. Yes. I totally understand this man. Um, he's got all these moves. Right. Um, but this is what they did. They would he, ratchet, ratchet, ratchet. Right. You know what I mean? Which was. It works. It works right. really well. To react and say this is awful seems exhausting as a congressperson because you don't get anything done. You don't, you don't do anything but react to someone saying a terrible thing to you. Well, I think that that's partly what you're reacting to, but you still have an agenda on how do we expand rural broadband? How do we get people a $15 minimum wage? How do we have infrastructure in this country? How do we lower the cost of prescription drugs? Notice the exchange with Congressman Cummings. Mm-hmm. The president attacked him very personally uh, and attacked uh, his district and his leadership, and Chairman Cummings didn't respond in kind. He didn't uh, throw, he didn't even uh, uh, criticize the president. He said, Mr. President, uh, I'm disappointed. Uh, I met with you about prescription drugs, and I'm ready to work with you anytime you want to work on prescription drugs. And uh, he took the, the high road. And so uh, the Congress, our focus is going to be on what we can get done, uh, but you can't say that we just stay quiet in the face of the president's attacks, especially when they're attacks on uh, the very fabric of what this country stands for. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this in my live interview with Congressman Ro Khanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
What does that feel like to be there now in Washington? What is the mood between Republicans and Democrats? It feels that we are letting the country down in that uh, you, you look at uh, what China is doing. And I you know, disagree, obviously, with their uh, worldview, but they are building all these new colleges. They are building, they have a rural broadband program that in the next three years, they're going to spend uh, 98% of uh, China is going to be connected to the internet. They are investing in winning the green energy race. They are investing $150 billion in artificial intelligence. They are uh, creating exploitive relationships throughout Africa. And then the question is, and what is our Congress doing? We're tweeting back and forth with people. I mean, what are we doing to help this country win the 21st century? What are we doing to help create jobs and opportunities for so many people who have been left out? Uh, it seems a unserious time. Mm -hmm. Well, and very serious at the same time. It does help when you have an authoritarian regime of a homogeneous country that spies on its citizens almost sure. constantly. Um, you can get a lot done in that regard. Well, but some of it, look, obviously, uh, I'm not defending in any way what China uh, is political models. And Hong Kong is uh, yes, uh, exactly. a, a example of the uh, revolt against authoritarian leadership. And Xi Jinping has been uh, terrible in many ways. I mean, the way they've treated the Uyghurs, the way they are uh, de dealing with dissent, the use of technology to perfect uh, control over individuals, which is why I don't think we should allow Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu to be the dominant uh, tech companies, uh, it, which would happen if we uh, really went, uh, uh, had no regard for American tech companies. But I don't think that we can just excuse our inaction and an inability to do things uh, to saying, oh, we have a messy democracy. We have been capable of doing things in the past. We won the, the space race because America mobilized and had 3% of our GDP into uh, massive investments after the Soviets launched the, the satellite. And we wanted to, to, to really invest in those things. And we uh, have been capable in the past of uh, uh, transitioning to and thinking about how we're going to create economic opportunity in places so left So talk behind. a little bit about that economic opportunity. It's something you've worked on a lot. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of NASA, uh, the, the landing on the moon. What do you think is critical to be investing? And you've traveled, you did something in the Midwest, and yes. you did uh, some rural areas and things like that. What do you think is the, the critical things that we need to invest in then? If you talk to people in, in these rural districts, that will tell you the first thing is rural broadband, that people want high-speed internet access in uh, every community. I'll tell you one of the ways I know that that's probably right is that Sprint and T-Mobile had this disingenuous ad in every church newspaper in Iowa saying, support the T-Mobile uh, Sprint merger, uh, extend the digital revolution to Iowa. Uh, and uh, the, the reality is a lot of these communities, they, they want to have access to high-speed internet and they want to make sure that they have some uh, ability to get uh, credentialing uh, in uh, something that's going to lead to a job in technology or at least have that sense of possibility uh, in their communities. It could be in ag tech. It could be in robotics process automation. It could be uh, in any field, but they want to have some at least opportunity for those jobs. And so to have private industry working with community colleges, working with uh, federal government and creating that uh, opportunity. Uh, and then I would uh, invest in 
programs and incentives to get people hired in these communities. I mean, Quebec has a program of tax incentives to be uh, for people who are hired in uh, technology in that area that led to a lot of tech companies and, and innovation coming there. Do you, you, you did visit, I think it was Silicon Hollow. They call everything Silicon something. Right. Like wherever they go. But this was ho- Holler. I guess it was Hall. Uh, Hal Rogers' district in right, Paintsville, exactly. Kentucky. Right. Is this something that's doable, or are we creating this sort of elite at the coasts with the center without these jobs? I mean, I've talked about this with Steve Case and Mark Cuban. Right. They were making a case, particularly Mark, saying Silicon Valley is over. Silicon well, Valley is finished. True. Well, I know he was just saying it to I be mean, obnoxious. That's how I mean, but, say stuff like that on Shark Tank. But it, well, I it mean, wasn't Shark Tank. It was at, yes. actually, oddly enough, an Anthony Scaramucci event, which right. was well, the whole thing was strange. <laughs> I won't go into it. I, I mean, Apple like, and what Google am I are doing at, two, here? at a trillion-dollar market yeah. cap. So, I mean, it's a little bit. I know. I got you, you can't both say that we ought to break them up. They're too powerful, and they're over. I mean, it's got to well, be one or the other. <laughs> from an imagination, innovation point of view. But how do you get that to the mid? And they're trying to do things rise of the rest, or even no, Shark I'm very Tank. supportive they're, of that. So how do you get that to happen? Because it doesn't seem to happen. It, there's a lot of visits. There's a lot of, you know, at one point, everyone in Silicon Valley was going to these places, right. which seemed like a safari tour at some point. Yeah. It got a little ridiculous. Um, how do you get that to happen? Well, first, I think it requires local leadership. I don't think Silicon Valley or someone can plop into a place and say, okay, we're going to create a technology opportunity. You need the local school district, the local community college, local industry, local leadership to buy in. So Jefferson, Iowa, where it's been a success, you had Accenture, which acquired Pillar Technology, which was an Iowa company, say, we're going to partner with Des Moines Community College and Central uh, Iowa Community College. We're going to have Jefferson School District be completely uh, remodeled in, 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 into having a tech center, and we're going to have a 12th grade class for kids to get uh, basic tech training, and then they're going to get a two-year program in combination with Des Moines and Accenture. And at the end of that, uh, Accenture is going to agree to hire them at $65,000. Now, then they said, okay, let's partner with Silicon Valley, and we had the tech go out and uh, and, and do a training with a lot of the teachers on what a Silicon Valley curriculum would look like, uh, Microsoft CTO uh, and others started funding scholarships. Ripple became uh, in- interested in providing uh, technology, but they were as partners to an effort that was organic to a community. So I think a lot of it first requires significant local buy-in, and then we need uh, the federal government that can fund and help scale uh, some of uh, the yeah, expansion. The, the numbers have declined really precipitously, investments like this. For the government at this point, yes. I think. Yes, I mean, the federal government can scale successful models to create these kind of hubs across the country. But I think what's important for technology, where tech can can be successful is, and where I admire what Steve Case and to the extent Mark Cuban is doing that, is technology is still uh, deeply fascinating to people. And most people, when you go, in my opinion, to Pennsylvania or Ohio, they don't talk to you about privacy and they don't talk to you about antitrust. What they, what was Trump's message? Trump's message was you built America. Your grandparents, your uh, great-grandparents fought for this country, fought for this freedom. Uh, and now all these people on the coasts are doing really well. And what happened to you? I'm going to bring back your pride. I'm going to bring back your sense of uh, possibility. And I think when tech leaders go into these communities and say, we believe in you, we believe your kids, your communities can be part of 
the technology future, and we're going to bring more jobs, more opportunity, more possibility. Uh, that's getting them to buy into the future. Mm-hmm. Trump doesn't sit there asking economists to go study whether we're actually going to get coal jobs back or manufacturing jobs back. He goes and he sells his vision. And, and you know, when people often ask me, why is it that more people don't care about Trump's obstruction of justice and Trump's violating all these norms? And I say, because he's fighting for their way of life. He's fighting for their dignity as they see it. And we have to speak not on a policy basis. We have to speak not with Rod Shetty's studies, who is a brilliant economist of moving places. We have to say, we believe your community is going to have more choice, more possibility, more opportunity in the future. And we believe in your kids and, and, and sell that. So speaking of selling that, you work with Bernie Sanders, correct? What is it? What's your job? What is your, you have backed him or what? I don't understand these political things that you all do. <laughs> well, I'm one of his co-chairs. That's I, right. I, That's what you... I mean, my job is still to represent the district, yes, but I it's got that volunteer. Part. Yeah. So what is that? Why did you pick Bernie Sanders? We worked on Yemen together. I, my uh, passion uh, on foreign policy comes from my grandfather. He had spent uh, four years in jail with Gandhi in the 1940s uh, in, in human rights. When I got to Congress, the Yemenese community came to me and talked about some of the famine that was uh, one of the largest famine in in, uh, uh, in the world. 14 million people may face that uh, famine. The United States government was funding a refueling Saudi planes, bombing and we passed together after two years of effort the first war powers resolution to stop uh, any refueling of Saudi planes. The president vetoed it, but the administration voluntarily suspended the refueling. And when I went to see which senator would introduce a war powers resolution, he was the only one who was willing to do so. So uh, he, uh, I would have supported him for whatever he wanted to do after that. All right. So how do you feel about the camp? What is, how, how do you look at it as a Democrat right now? There's, what, 20 people left? 20. 20. No, there's 20. Is it? Is it yeah. Tomorrow night and the next. Four, how many? 24? 24? Yeah. Something like that. Right. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, look, I, I think it's going to whittle down by, by the fall to six, seven serious candidates. But I think the fact that we have all of these candidates running now is, is a good thing. I mean, they're all getting their message out. They're all exciting different parts of the coalition. We've had, you know, when Jimmy Carter ran in the 19, uh, 1976, I think there were 18 to 20 candidates. So just because you have a lot of candidates doesn't mean that the party won't be unified afterwards. I uh, told uh, Senator Sanders when I accepted the offer that I wouldn't criticize any of his opponents. I would make the case for him. And I think if we keep it largely positive. I mean, make the differences on issues. Obviously, if Senator Sanders wants to, or uh, Vice President Biden wants to make a distinction about their health care or Medicare plans, they should feel free to criticize the plans. But as long as the conversation is uh, about the issues and doesn't get personal and that we unify afterwards, I think it can be a strength. So uh, of this field, if you had not to pick a second person, who do you like. I like Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I'm, I'm a progressive Democrat. I think she's running an extraordinary campaign. Mm-hmm. And I say that having, you know, we don't agree 100 percent on uh, tech. I mean, I think we need stronger antitrust enforcement, but I don't agree with her on everything, as I don't agree with Bernie Sanders on everything. But I think she has uh, run a very, very uh, detailed campaign. She has a clear vision of what she wants to do. I think she's doing an incredible job of telling her story in a way that 
connects uh, with people across the country. In that, in, in connecting with people to get to the Trump base or people that he won over that had voted for Obama previously, right. what do you think the key elements are? Because some people are worried about her appeal to those people. Some people are worried about a lot of the Democrats' appeal. Well, first of all, and I say this as someone who had, uh, you know, backed Senator Sanders even the, the first time, I think Hillary Clinton... Uh, was a better candidate than people give her credit for. And I think just piling on on candidates who lose is not uh, the right thing. It's very, very hard to hold a presidency after eight years. Usually the other party wins. And so a lot of, I think, what was going on uh, was people were uh, upset that wages had continued to be stagnant that uh, the technology revolution and globalization had left communities out and they wanted to vote against the status quo. Uh, and now they've seen uh, what Trump has done. They've seen that uh, he really hasn't focused on forgotten Americans. He has focused on a large tax break to uh, very wealthy individuals. Uh, these communities still don't see much progress on what he promised. And so I think that the argument that the Democrats have to now is easier uh, because we've seen uh, Trump's true colors. And uh, I personally think any of the top candidates will have a very, very good chance against him. Mm -hmm. And the key message is being what? Because it can't be running against him. It's got to be about running for something. I think the key message is there have been communities that have been left out of the economic prosperity of this country. And there have been people who have been left out uh, about the economic prosperity of this country and that we are going to actually empower them with more pay, better economic opportunity, revitalize these communities that have been left out and that the president promised to fix and hasn't. And of the, of the many uh, areas we just talked previously about health care, you are a Medicare for all person? I am. And what does that mean to you? Because it means something different to a lot of different people. What's so, your Medicare for all? Medicare for all means that every person uh, gets Medicare. And, and, you know, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan had 24 hearings on the Clinton plan in 1994. And at the end of it, he turned to his Senate staff finance director and he said, you know, I guess the only real thing that can work is just extending Medicare. I mean, I, I think that that is uh, the simplest way of uh, the, the solution. And... That doesn't mean you can't have supplemental private insurance. Even Bernie Sanders' bill allows that. I mean, the current Medicare law is that if you are on Medicare, you can't have private insurance that is duplicative of what Medicare provides. And so if you extend Medicare for everyone, mm -hmm. obviously you have to extend that law and you can't have private insurance that would be duplicative of Medicare. But that doesn't, if you want to go after we provide you with uh, Medicare, if you really want to have uh, more, you, you can. And in Britain, for example, 4% of the population has private and supplemental insurance post having national health care. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, that, that is the Bernie Sanders bill. Uh, I think it would lower uh, the cost for many startups. It would uh, make us more competitive and it would make sure that people had health care from the day they were born. All right. Lastly, uh, last week in the hearings, one of the things that came out was Russian interference continues to be an issue uh, yes. or will continue to be an issue. The bills to fix this, of course, are mucked up in the Senate. 
McConnell. Right. I think his name is Moscow Mitch now. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I don't like those nicknames. That's a good one. Um, how do you get that through? Because it's critically important in each of these states. It seems to, you know, I was just up at Microsoft looking at some of their new software, which mm-hmm. is an encrypted vote along with a paper ballot, which gives you backup. Right. Which inst- there's all kinds of ideas, innovations in this area that could be great. Um, how worried are you? And I'm concerned. Worried? I mean, I, uh, you know, the bills that Mitch McConnell are holding up says if you are a campaign and you are contacted by foreign agents, you should notify law enforcement. I mean, how controversial is this? And he doesn't want to move that because they view that any uh, effort at talking about foreign interference is, uh, the, is undermining Trump's reelection. What they haven't figured out is there could be Norwegian interference in front of, in, in, on behalf of Bernie Sanders. And uh, they just are not anticipating the, the uh, possibility of Norwegian interference. But I, 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 uh, I mean, you would think that... You've now, you let, have, now you've shown your hand. You know, you, you would think that you could have consensus that we shouldn't have foreign interference uh, in, in elections. But we don't. And that's why this is going to be one of the ugliest campaigns in American history. And we should anticipate that this president will do any and everything possible to win. I mean, that should just, we, we should not go into it with any degree of complacency. And what it will take, as, as Speaker Pelosi, you know, she was quoted as saying, well, I don't think he will leave if, if he, uh, unless we win by a large ma- margin. But I think what she really meant is, uh, we're gonna have to mobilize and win by five, six percent to account for all of the obstacles that are going to be thrown our way, which is uh, the voter ID laws, voter suppression, the, the possible interference, the uh, shenanigans on, on, on social media sites. And so we have to mobilize and unify in a way that is unprecedented. And I think anyone who underestimates the president's chances would be making a mistake. We have to run uh, like we're down. It's the only way to run uh, a campaign. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Ro Khanna, who represents California's 17th district in the U.S. House of Representatives, where Apple and Google happen to be also. All right. Questions from the audience? Uh, hi, Representative Khanna. Hi, how are uh, you? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm working for a candidate in California's fourth district, a guy named Sean Frame, and it's one of the places where there hasn't been a ton of democratic investment over the years. And I was just wondering if you could speak to spreading the democratic brand, particularly to, you know, deeper red districts like that, where we can, you know, still get more votes, pass more propositions, maybe flip a seat, that kind of thing. Yeah. There was also well, a big shakeup today at the DCCC. Right. That looked crazy. I don't care, but right. <laughs> it seemed crazy. Well, I mean, I, they they wanted to make sure that the yes. person there was uh, responsive to all parts of the yeah. constituency. Which is everybody quit. But okay, go ahead. Right. Go uh, ahead. But I don't think those things, those that's inside baseball that yeah. I don't think ultimately is going to matter for one seat. I mean, the Democrats are doing well in terms of the funding and recruiting candidates and uh, the front line. So I think we'll be fine. But I do agree with you that we need to have a strategy that... Uh, uh, supports candidates in every district in this country. And I appreciate very much you're getting involved in a in a campaign where the district is more red. But there were a lot of districts last time we won where people thought 
oh, that's too red. We're not going to win. I mean, no one thought TJ Cox was going to win. No one thought that Harley Ruda necessarily in the beginning was going to win. So, uh, you know, we should approach every district as one which is winnable. Now, at the end, if you're the DCCC or the speaker, you have to uh, make certain choices and support places which are most likely to win. But I think there has to be a baseline investment uh, in uh, every district uh, to uh, uh, to fight for for progressive values, and I appreciate what you're what you're doing. Cool. Uh, another question right here. How do you balance the belief that Trump has sort of overplayed his hand in sort of the anti-diversity rhetoric with a need for us as progressives to reach into those communities and kind of share a different narrative for the direction the country should be heading? Into which communities? Communities that resonate with that story of kind of a narrower definition of what it means to be American and a rejection of the diversity that I think lots of us agree with as a strength. The ones that don't like the squad. So I think we have to uh, speak more aspirationally. Uh, every person, when that the president's uh, tweet happened about send them back, we got like 15 media requests saying can Ro Khanna come on television uh, and tell us a time where uh, he was told that uh, to go back to, to India? And so I went on, I, I said, okay, I'll accept one of these. And I said, you know, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I'm 42 years old. And uh, yes, there are one or two times that I've been told that. But, you know, I grew up at a time where it was a 99% white community. And I had teachers who believed in me and little league coaches who believed in me, and neighbors who believed in me. And uh, now I represent arguably the most economically powerful district in the nation or the world. And I choose to believe that that's much more the story of America than the story that Donald Trump is telling. Uh, I believe the way you win people is by inspiring them to uh, have a sense of what America is. This is not a new question. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, wrote about this and, and spoke about this in, in, in Jul on July 10th in 1858. It was his July 4th speech. And the challenge back then was that the Germans and the French uh, didn't feel that they were American because the test of what it meant to be an American is you had to be able to trace your ancestors back to the revolution. That if you couldn't trace your ancestors back to the revolution, how could you be American? And Lincoln, in two pages that are more articulate than anything anyone has tweeted in the last year, uh, basically tries to He'd answer— He'd be a good tweeter. Huh? He'd be a good tweeter. He'd be a great tweeter. I mean, <laughs> tweet, tweets would be insulting to Abraham Lincoln, I mean, but, but, but he would be probably good at it. Uh, but but he, so he, he says that—he um, says, well, I believe that German-Americans— and uh, French Americans are flesh of the flesh and blood of the blood of the founders. If they believe in the principles of the Declaration of Independence, because there's an electric cord that links all Americans to our founding, if they believe in the fundamental principles of liberty and equality. That's Lincoln in 1858 having a more profound understanding of a, a, a multi-ethnic America than we do today. So my view is don't let Donald Trump define patriotism. Don't let him define American history. Don't make arguments for diversity in the sense that it's something new. Great leaders, in my view, or thoughtful leaders, actually ground values in the context of 
the culture and history of the nation. I mean, certainly Dr. King did, Lincoln did. And I think what we do is we out history, whatever that means, if the verb, verb is wrong, Donald Trump, where that we show that we have an understanding of the true American historical context and that we ground our views in that and that we let people believe in the aspirational vision of America. Yeah, right there. I'm sorry, I know my glasses on right there. And then we'll go over here. Hi, uh, I just wanted to know your reasoning, um, why you voted in favor of the recent uh, censure of the BDS movement. Yeah, and I won't color the question any further. I appreciate that. I was waiting for that question to come there up. There you go. So uh, I, my view uh, in, on the U.S.-Israel relationship is one of a that uh, Israel is an, uh, an ally, but we ought to be grounding it on a progressive values. And so I have opposed any bill to criminalize uh, or penalize uh, any boycott. But I, uh, and I believe that the principles of the relationship with Israel should be uh, no new settlements, uh, a halt to demolitions, a lifting to the extent possible of the blockade on, on Gaza without uh, compromising certain security provisions, which is a very progressive vision. I do not think that uh, boycott and divestment of the entire country of Israel uh, is justified or uh, one that is going to get the parties to the peace table. And that's why I uh, voted for the Schneider bill saying that, uh, but which the boycott and global boycott and divestment, by the way, is not just talking about divestment in the settlements. It's talking about divestment against the whole country. And I just, I don't agree with that. Okay. Um, let's do one over here and then we'll do this one. Go ahead. And then I have one more question I forgot. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the two you know, I don't think we've talked a lot about the future of tech. What are the two most pressing challenges that you see moving forward? And what are you doing tangibly right now to make sure that tech is healthy for all of us in the future, and especially for those who are in your district? Well, let me talk about the challenges of te tech in my district and then maybe the challenges of tech nationally. Uh, in my district, I think the biggest challenge is uh, affordability of housing, of people being able to live there uh, and, uh, and, and issues of being able to afford to live in the community uh, without, if, if they don't work in one of these externally high paying jobs. And so we need to do a lot more in terms of building uh, affordable housing, in terms of building housing uh, for teachers, in terms of building public transportation so, so people can get around the district. And the two biggest issues that come up time and again in where I live is affordable housing and, and public transportation and, and traffic. For the country, I think that the big challenge uh, is what I have alluded to earlier, is access to uh, the opportunity be, to be involved in, uh, in the technology, in the new economy, in the technology economy. Mm -hmm. Every American has become a consumer of technology in some sense. I mean, every American uh, is on Google or on Facebook at some point or Twitter or uh, order something on Amazon. But not every American has the opportunity to participate in the technology economy. So democratizing access to the technology economy, spreading the technology revolution to communities left behind, whether those are communities of color or whether those are communities in rural America, to me seems to be the biggest challenge facing our, our country. Uh, I think the Clinton-Blair bet was that 
we were going to invest in innovation, that that was going to lead to a more liberal world and that it was going to lead to a more powerful, innovative United States. And to some extent, you know, the fact that millions of people in China and India have been lifted out of poverty is a good thing. But what I think they totally missed was that uh, there would be geographic uh, concentration of economic opportunity and that there would be whole communities that were left out. And I think we have to now address that. And also addiction, hate speech, disinformation. There's all kinds of stuff. What's a positive thing for tech, do you think? What's something cool? There are a lot of positive things. I was at a, at, at, I was at a company this morning, uh, that uh, White Rabbit, that uh, uses artificial intelligence to uh, be able to monitor and, and assess uh, uh, breast cancer uh, radiology. And so it turns out, as I didn't know before this meeting, that when you have one radiologist looking at uh, a, a scan, you have about a 50% chance of an accurate diagnosis. If you have two people looking at it, it goes up to 75%. But a lot of times we can't afford two people. So what this company does is they say, look, we're still going to have a doctor, but we can have artificial intelligence conduct one uh, parts of the, part of the scan. So you're literally increasing the odds from 50% to 75% of an accurate diagnosis. The second thing they do is, uh, which again, I didn't know before this meeting, is that uh, apparently 10% of people who get a mammogram uh, have a false positive. And of that, it's a very small percentage uh, of the 10% who actually have breast cancer. But people have to wait almost a month or two months before they find out if they're in the 10% whether they have cancer or not. Well, under this uh, company that they have, because they use artificial intelligence, they can uh, help someone get that diagnosis in 15 minutes. So that's an example of a technology that I think... The ladies know about the first part, just, you know. Yes, well, I'm sure they do. It was ama it's amazing how bad the diagnostics can yes. be, especially around radiology. It's a really, it's an area that probably will not have doctors. It'll probably be AI that does a lot of those diagnostics. A lot of diagnosis in general going forward will be done by AI. Yeah, so that's, I think, one... Are you nervous about that at all, or facial recognition with all these things making I determinations? Am. I am, and I, mean, I do think we ought to have a moratorium at, uh, or strongly consider a moratorium on facial recognition yeah. until that uh, they can get uh, away from the biases of uh, race and profiling. I mean, when you have John Lewis showing up in, uh, in artificial intelligence uh, and facial recognition uh, and being confused for someone who had a criminal background, you know that that technology can only- Did you only... get caught, caught into that? Did they use your face? The ACLU did the test of I Amazon's don't they, recognition. I, I don't think they did. I mean, but I think John Lewis speaks, they don't yeah. need me. They, yeah, they've got, yeah. They, they made their point with Lewis. There were a lot of members of Congress. But, 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 you know, I think that they- For those who don't know, the ACLU did a test of Amazon's recognition and many, many members of Congress were confused with convicted felons. Yes, and so, you know, we don't want technology exacerbating our worst uh, instincts and biases. But I, I remain a, a technology optimist. I mean, I think that technology can create more economic opportunity and more possibility. The question is, it has to be guided by humanistic values. One question, one of the things that people think about of protecting Americans from tech companies is Section 230 of the Communications Decency right. Act. What is your take on that? We just, you and I have discussed this at various times, and, and Speaker Pelosi called it a gift to technology, and maybe it was one that should be taken away. There's all kinds of people talking about that. I think tech is terrified that something like that's, I mean, you have Josh Hawley, right. um, when he's not doing his crazy conspiracy stuff, a very serious bill about this. 
a lot of people are on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, are talking about this. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen uh, a proposal. This so is for those who don't know. It's it's a very it's a very short thing. It's it, it grants these platforms some form of immunity. It's well, not quite that. Right. I mean, it says that if you post something to to Google or Facebook, that Google or Facebook won't be liable for the post of the people who are using their platforms. And while uh, the one place where they didn't quite erode Section 230, but we're getting close, was a bill that I. Uh, did not support, which was FOSTA and SESTA, where what the law did was criminalize uh, basic sex work. And if you talk to people in the sex work industry, they now fear uh, exchanging information about safety online. It's forced that work back into the streets. I think it's had a terrible effect. I think a lot of those prosecutions uh, of terrible sites could have been done under the existing law and you didn't need to criminalize it. So my fear in uh, removing Section 230 is that you would have greater government criminalization and interference uh, of the Internet. And I tend to believe that uh, while there needs to be more responsibility, ultimately the Internet should be a site of largely free speech. Do you think your companies in your district have the ability to do that? To have more responsibility on... Do you think they have the ability and the will to do it? Not, ha- they haven't had the best record. Not, not yet. I mean, I, I think they need help. But I, but I will say this, and I, do I, look, I've criticized these tech companies for numbers of, of things. So I'm not uh, an apologist. I mean, I've criticized the way Facebook cantered Cambridge Analytica. I've criticized uh, during the election that they didn't do enough on the, the uh, interference, that they had posts uh, uh, talking about... Uh, suppressing African-American votes and that there was not enough monitoring. But, you know, one thing that we never talk about is if you look at Grenko did a study at Stanford about what the biggest influence was of the polarization of the electorate in Donald Trump's election. And it actually wasn't social media companies. Anyone guess what it was? Cable news. Cable news. Fox. I mean, no one is talking about, and that's, a lot of the voters are actually getting their information from there. So uh, do, do I think that we ought to have a greater thought about uh, what social media's company's responsibility is to make sure that they are contributing to democracy and not undermining it? Absolutely. But do I think that they can be blamed for the uh, cheapening of American discourse and all our problems? No. I mean, I think the truth is probably in between. All right, everybody. Ro Khanna. Thank you, Congressman Khanna, for coming back on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. And special thanks to Manny's for hosting us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.